Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Welcome to a new feature of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Once a month, we will have the research review similar to a journal club. There will be a theme of the articles that are reviewed, and I'll bring guests who may be an author of the articles or topic experts in the theme area we'll discuss. I'm looking forward to this new type of episode format. We're still continuing with discussing current hot topics with other episodes that you've come to enjoy. So don't worry, we're not jumping ship and just going to all research. We're just adding a new way to offer you, our listeners, an opportunity to stay current with the new pediatric sports medicine research. Our theme for today's research review is youth baseball. We'll have three articles we're going to review, and my guest reviewer today is Dr. Jason Zaremski. Dr. Zaremski is an associate professor in the Department of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation at the University of Florida. He received his medical degree from Tufts University and then stayed at Tufts to complete his residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation. He is fellowship trained in sports medicine through the Geisinger Health System Program in Pennsylvania. He currently serves as a sports medicine physician at the University of Florida and is the co-medical director for their high school outreach program. He is an elected member of the board of directors for the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. And relevant to our topic today, he is a former collegiate baseball catcher and will bring a great perspective to our articles today. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, Jason. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, Looking forward to this. Yeah, it should be good. I think it'll be interesting to go through these, and I'm excited to talk about baseball. I know probably you are too as a former baseball player, and we're waiting to see if baseball will happen this season or not. Well, yeah, uh, I, I think we're all kind of hoping sports in general gets going, but from the sounds of it, maybe there will be about a 60 to 65 game season as of today, but we'll see what happens. Our three articles today are an American Journal of Sports Medicine article from earlier this year from lead author Joshua Holt from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, titled Progressive Elbow Magnetic Resonance Imaging Abnormalities in Little League Baseball Players Are Common, a Three-Year Longitudinal Evaluation, followed by another AJSM article from this year from Kurokawa from Tohoku University in Japan, titled The Influence of Pitch Velocity on Medial Elbow Pain and Medial Epicondylar Abnormality Among Youth Baseball Players. And we'll finish up with a 2018 article from the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine from our guest, from Dr. Jason Zaremski, titled Unaccounted Workload Factor, Game Day Pitch Counts in High School Baseball Pitchers, an Observational Study. I'm looking forward to talking about each of these articles. I'm going to kick us off with the Holt article from AGSM. We will make sure that we have the links to the PubMed info for each of the articles in the show notes. I know a couple of these are free to download. Some of you, unfortunately, may be behind paywalls. Uh, But if you want to get the source info yourself, you can go to those links in our show notes. Talking about the Holt study, this is a cohort study. It's a follow-up study, actually, of a group of Little League players who underwent a preseason and postseason elbow MRI. And in that original study, they had 26 asymptomatic youth players who were from the ages of 10 to 13. What they found is that 35% had baseline elbow MRI abnormalities preseason. By the end of the original study season, 48% of the players now had dominant elbow MRI pathology, and 28% had developed arm pain at some point during the season. This was despite 100% compliance with published pitching guidelines. It was also found that the findings were primarily medial-sided, as we would typically expect for most of these kids, and in association with year-round play by the study participants, again, also what we tend to see quite frequently. Fortunately, they were able to get all of the 26 original subjects back for a three-year follow-up study. At the point of follow-up, 58% of them were still actively involved with competitive baseball. And an interesting point we could discuss later, Jason, as far as dropout rate from sports that we fear happens. I find it interesting, actually, that 11 of the athletes who are no longer playing, only one of them in the original study was a year-round baseball player. So actually, most that were still playing were previously year-round players at the time of the original study. For the follow-up study, the assessment included shoulder and elbow range of motion. They looked at rotator cuff strength, stability assessments of the shoulder and elbow, and then they had them undergo an MRI similar to the original study in the winter months prior to their spring season, which was three years after their initial enrollment from the first study. These were bilateral elbow MRI studies that they did similar to the original one, and the radiologist who reviewed them was musculoskeletal trained and blinded to the history of pain and throwing arm dominance. Comparisons were not done to the previous study's MRI until the interpretations were complete of the latest study MRI, and they were performed on a decent magnet, a three-Tesla magnet. 
They also took history, but unlike the previous study, the detailed pitch counts and throwing history were not collected for this particular study. They just looked at things like pain and what positions they were playing and what have you. What they found in this new study is that 57.7% of players now had a dominant arm elbow MRI pathology, and 80% of them were new or progressive lesions from the previous study. And if you recall, they found 35% with abnormalities at baseline, and it increased to 48% by the end of the season, all of whom were asymptomatic. And then 42% of those with previously normal postseason MRIs now had new pathology, and non-dominant arm pathology was also found. They found that if there was a previous postseason MRI pathology in the study subjects, that they were more likely to have MRI pathology at the three-year follow-up than those who had no postseason abnormalities in the original study, and we would expect that. Year-round play, which they define for this group as greater than eight months per year, was a significant predictor of elbow tenderness to palpation and the positive MRI findings at three years. And then 80% who played year-round had MRI pathology compared to only 38.5% who did not play year-round, so certainly a risk factor that we, we know about. Another difference they reported on was from their physical exam. What they found is internal rotation of the dominant shoulder was significantly decreased compared to the non-dominant shoulder in all patients. When they looked at the whole cohort, however, dominant shoulder external rotation was not found to be significantly increased compared to the non-dominant arm. But when they pulled data out on the dominant shoulder external rotation in subgroups, they did find that pitchers and catchers had increased dominant shoulder external rotation compared to the non-pitchers and catchers, which is something I think we probably routinely see in our offices. They also found that the same increased external rotation if you played year-round, so the over the eight months a year, compared to those who are playing less than eight months a year, as well as finding that the increase in those who were still playing at the three-year follow-up versus those who stopped playing at the time of the follow-up. So again, we see a change there from those that are continuing to play. They also found that the three-year follow-up, now 27% had reported having throwing elbow pain, and three of the cohort had actually been casted for elbow pain and for the diagnosis of Little League elbow. I do want to take a break kind of talking about this article. Jason, do you typically cast for Little League elbow? And the short answer is no. I've actually never heard of anyone casting for Little League elbow. Now, the question is, when they're saying Little League elbow, and, and I did not see it in the manuscript, are they just talking about an apophysitis, or are they being a little more liberal with the diagnosis of the lily elbow and saying a true like a Salter-Harris 1 or a widening of the physis where you could treat it more like a fracture or bony injury as opposed to an enthesitis or soft tissue injury? I have casted one time a 15-year-old who had a supracondylar stress fracture. He was a high school catcher, and that was because he basically wasn't being compliant using a sling. But that, that was a little bit more significant of a bony injury. But for just regular apophysitis, enthesitis type injuries, I would not cast someone, at least in my opinion. First and foremost, as a lot of your listeners might know, elbows notoriously will get very stiff quickly. So with elbows, I try not to immobilize if I don't have to. Another reason is you want to make sure you can at least maintain some flexibility while allowing the soft tissue to heal. A sling might be okay for a week or two if someone's got a pretty significant case, but I personally, as well as just anecdotally, have never casted or heard of a colleague casting for true lily elbow. Yeah, I'm in that same boat. I've never casted for the actual diagnosis of the apophysitis part of things. I certainly, I have casted on occasion for the ones that come in that have the the acute avulsion fracture because they sure. act exactly like any other fracture around the elbow. Sure. They have very limited motion. They're swollen. They're painful. And I'll cast them for a short time. But then obviously, as you talked about, we don't want to keep them casted for too long because of that elbow stiffness concern. Sure. And I think you make a good distinction. If you have an obvious bony injury, I think that's very different than a soft tissue injury. Another thing, and while it's not the focus of this manuscript, if you're talking about like a medial epicondyle avulsion. Also, it's important for your listeners to understand if you've got a significant amount of distraction or not. If you're typically less than two to three millimeters or less, that, that can be treated fine non-operatively. But if you have a distraction of more than three to five millimeters, that's even something that I would typically send over to either one of my pediatric pedic colleagues or sports medicine surgical colleagues. Glad you brought that up. That's actually, I think, probably a whole nother episode uh, to talk <laughs> sure. about. Yeah. Just as far as that, I mean, there is even amongst the partners that I have here, there is still debate as far as well, how much displacement do you start considering surgical management? You know, concerns about the integrity of the UCL if it's too far distracted. You know, I, I think there's there's all sorts of things there, but I, I absolutely think that that's a loaded episode. Uh, <laughs> it's certainly one that I'll have one of my surgical colleagues on so we can kind of put that Point, back. Point, counterpoint, surgery, non-surgery. Um, oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
For sure. You know, it's it's kind of like concussions, right? You put a whole bunch of us in the room who all deal with it and all have kind of a different way, a different kind of perspective on managing. And I think it's the same way when it comes to those medial epicondylar avulsion fractures. Oh, totally agree. In their discussion, they acknowledge that it isn't known if these findings, many of which were asymptomatic, predicted anything long-term. There was no correlation to elbow pain or tenderness in this study with the findings. The findings that they found primarily were medial elbow-sided issues, as we suspected. And interestingly, in the three-year follow-up, they found two partial UCL tears and a chronic UCL tear. I did not see that they talked about these being arthrograms. These look like just standard MRIs at the time. Certainly, an astute radiologist could probably figure those types of things out based on the findings there. There was a discussion also that that may be an ominous sign, as they referenced an article by Garcia, who looked at 41 MLB asymptomatic pictures. And those who had MRI findings that were asymptomatic were more likely to have future inferior pitching performance. They were more likely to be placed on the disabled list and also needed elbow surgery. I think they're, they're kind of talking about this in terms of we need to be concerned when we see these findings here, but we still don't really know for sure in this group until we follow them out further. They also recommended that a three-month period of rest should be a requirement instead of suggested for all baseball players. I I think we probably, both of us, would be in agreement that that's probably appropriate. I'm not a fan of the year-round baseball. We do know that from plenty of studies that are out there that we do start to see more pain and more problems from that. They did acknowledge limitations, including that they weren't collecting detailed pitch counts and inning counts in the follow-up, and that it is still a smaller group. But as you would expect for an MRI study, there were financial limitations to how many people that they could do. I think it's interesting to see the abnormalities. It's not totally surprising to me. Uh, it gives me some pause that in adults, the literature on asymptomatic MRI findings in so many different assessments of what we see, it probably reinforces to me in kids that we just, again, need to be cautious with overtreating based on the MRI results alone and putting this all together clinically for these kids. Any thoughts or comments about this article, Jason? Yeah, I think it's a nice article that reinforces I think what we already know. So one, you're round, particularly at the adolescent level, participation in sport, and in this case, baseball, really isn't great for joints. Obviously, we know from a significant amount of literature in, in all aspects of sport that multi-sport play, free play, particularly at the youngest of levels, is going to be beneficial uh, as one ages. It is interesting to note some of the data that was in there that the individuals who quit, the one out of 11, were the ones who were not year-round. And it's a very interesting phenomenon where we have to balance the fact that the kids who are good, and you can define good, high-performing, wherever you want to call them, the kids who are good are the ones that are going to participate more, and the ones that are going to participate more are probably going to have overuse injuries versus the kids that aren't quote-unquote good or don't like the sport will stop and won't sustain those injuries. So in some respects, the kid who can throw harder, can hit farther, who has a higher batting average, maybe the, the, the little giant when, when he or she is 12 years old, you actually have to look out for, in some respects, the better player year round. That doesn't hold true when you're looking at an individual patient, but if you're looking at a whole team, that's your kid that is at more risk for injury because coaches are going to want him or her to play more, be on multiple teams. So I think that is something that is almost counterintuitive where sometimes we're looking out for the kid who has not been, shall we say, preparing for the season, which they're at risk for an overuse injury right at the start of the year, you know, like a simple biceps tendonitis. But on the flip side, the kid who is better that's going to be the one that you have to look out for long-term because they're going to probably be participating in some form of a travel ball, a legion ball, a high school team. They may be pitching and catching, even though we may not advise it. So I think that that was actually pretty interesting if you look through the data a little bit. The other thing is, and Mark, you, you mentioned it, is we can't treat asymptomatic people. You know, I think the easiest example is lumbar spine MRIs in adults. There's going to be some abnormalities. I think that's a given. What's interesting, though, is if there's degeneration of the UCL already when you are 9 to 12 years old, and as we'll see in a couple other studies, as well as other studies that are in the literature already, and actually one that I'm working on with colleagues here at UF currently, is if you already have stripping of your UCL at the sublime tubercle, you will be at risk if you happen to continue to develop and throw harder. These kids are 9 to 12 years old. Most likely, most of them haven't started to go through puberty yet. They probably aren't throwing hard enough yet to really sustain a severe injury. And the comment about it would be nice if there were 13 to 15-year-olds in the studies, I love to see those same 9 to 12-year-olds, if they had any UCL findings, what their UCL looked like when they were 14 or 15 and they started to go through puberty. That would be very interesting. 
Yeah, and I, I actually didn't go back to the original source article to see if they commented on any of that at the original study. I did not see any. They did comment in their – they put in their table there what some of the findings were, and I didn't see anything that kind of commented specifically about UCLs in this group when they tested them three years prior. But yeah, absolutely. I think we need to be cognizant about that and following those kids out. I, I think you bring up a good point there as far as the – the extreme player, right? I think it's both ends though. It's the kid who is the total sedentary kid, the kid who, which I'm seeing tons of in my office right now, (laughs) the kid who wasn't doing much over the course of the several months with quarantine and now is back first, you know, week playing, playing in tournaments and playing multiple games over the weekend. Or that kid that like you describe as the constant year round player that's being recruited to multiple teams is substituting on teams when people get them out there because they're the good player. You know, my big, worry combination, always the catcher pitcher, especially at that age where they're playing both of those and they really aren't getting the appropriate rest that they need. I think those are all, I think both ends of the spectrum there, which obviously in medicine, we always like to see everything done in moderation. (laughs) Exactly. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue working through some baseball research. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time. To make your podcast soar, editorcore.com. That's editorcore.com. We're back with Dr. Jason Zaremski for our research review episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We're discussing baseball theme articles today. Jason, I'm going to let you take the reins for the Kurokawa article. I'm going to discuss the influence of pitch velocity on medial elbow pain and medial epicondyle abnormality among youth baseball players. This is led by Daisuke Kurokawa and colleagues at Tohoku University in Sendai, Japan. This was a really nice manuscript, and we'll try to go through it, and hopefully it'll generate some good discussion, as well as social media as well. Really, the background for this manuscript is that Pitch velocity is associated with elbow injuries, particularly in skillful baseball players. We sort of alluded to this in the previous manuscript. However, the relationship between pitch velocity and throwing elbow injuries among youth players has not truly been clarified yet. So what the authors want to investigate was the influence of velocity on medial elbow pain and medial epicondyle abnormality among youth baseball players. Now, this was a cohort study, so it's level three evidence. They actually had a pretty large amount of participants. They had 256 elementary school age players. So elementary, by their definition, ranges from 9 to 12 years old. Their mean was 11 years old, plus or minus one year. So for the most part, they were 10 to 12 years old. And then what I started to look at is, first is, how did they use the radar gun? How is pitch velocity measured? So what they did is they measured it through a 16-meter fastball throw, given this was published uh, outside the United States to just convert that, that's 52 and a half feet. So it's not quite 60 feet, six inches, but with elementary age school kids, most of our kids in this country are going to be pitching uh, somewhere around 50 to 54 feet before they make it up to that high school level and 60 feet, six inches. But they measured the fastball throw on level ground and they use what's called rubber ball baseball, which is actually pretty popular in Japan. This is in particular popular at the elementary level and younger for, for the younger kids. Now, pitch velocity was measured using a standard pitch velocity radar gun, and it was actually very nicely done. They measured the pitch velocity three times in a row 
and took the median velocity for analysis. And they were the student athletes were retested three to six months thereafter. And then they took the mean of the first and second medians, and they defined that as to represent a pitch velocity. So if someone was having a good day versus bad day, you took kind of the middle ground. They then had a couple assessments. They had a questionnaire assessment, and they wanted to find out if there was current or present pain or pain in the past in the throwing dominant elbow, as well as some demographic background, such as the age, height, BMI, and years of baseball experience, as well as playing environment. So that included number of days of practice in a week experience as a baseball pitcher, have they used cryotherapy of the shoulder and or elbow after practice. Then they performed a physical examination that included position of the scapula, range of motion and shoulder internal and external rotation, hip internal rotation, angle of straight leg raise, and then what they call the heel to buttock distance uh, was measured to check for flexibility in their lower extremities. And then finally, they then imaged the elbow. Now, what they did for imaging was interesting. They imaged the medial aspect of the elbow with ultrasound. As we know, ultrasound, ultrasonographic imaging is becoming quite popular as well as it's very efficient and more affordable than MRI, as uh, a lot of us in medical, athletic training, healthcare fields know. They use a portable diagnostic ultrasound. I won't get into the details of the, the, the transducers. But what was interesting is four board-certified orthopedic surgeons who did not know the pitch velocity of the participants performed the ultrasonographic scanning. It's very interesting that surgeons were doing the ultrasound imaging, as in this country, outside of a radiologist, typically more primary care sports medicine physicians or non-operative physicians are using ultrasound as opposed to our orthopedic colleagues. What they did was they had a, a whole process for the actual imaging and I'll try to summarize it. Basically, they had the, the medial aspect of the elbow was assessed with the elbow flexed and the forearm placed in a supinated position. So almost kind of a 90 with a supination. And then they placed the transducer medial to the sublime tubercle. And then basically what they looked for, if there was any abnormality, fragmentation, such as irregularities or hypertrophy of the medial UCL, they then assessed the, the lateral aspect of the elbow, as well as the posterior lateral aspect of the elbow. So they looked at anterolateral, posterior lateral, as well as medial. They also looked for if there was an irregularity or fragmentation of subchondral bone of the capitellum. And if that was present, they would diagnose a, an OCD or osteochondritis discancellation of the capitellum. A result was that the medial epicondyle abnormality reserved in approximately 51% of the cohort. Elbow pain in the past was in about a quarter of the cohort. And elbow pain during examination was about 5%, not, not insignificant numbers. The other thing that was very interesting is that what happened was the abnormality of the mealpocondyle had a relationship with pitch velocity. So basically, pitch velocity was significantly correlated, I should say, with past pain, present pain, or when they combined it, past and or present pain of the elbow. So what they concluded was that pitch velocity was associated with abnormality of the mealpocondyle and the elbow pain. And they said with a 10 kilometer per hour or 6.2 mile per hour, if you convert it, increase in pitch velocity would increase the risk of a medial epicondyle abnormality and medial elbow pain by three times using their statistical analysis. So there's a couple of questions and points I want to bring up. Uh, I'll go over the, the author's limitations, which they brought up, as well as a couple of my own, and then uh, maybe some discussion uh, with, with, with you, Mark. One, from a limitation standpoint, and the authors did mention these, is it was retrospective. This was not a prospective study, so not quite as strong. The authors also didn't know if the players had a higher pitch velocity, uh, if the players with a higher pitch velocity had a higher incidence of morphological changes in the mealpocondyle or had a higher incidence of elbow pain. So they could, the, the, basically they're trying to say, was there causation or was there correlation? And it's kind of chicken or, or egg, which came first. Another thing is the authors mentioned in their discussion pitch counts, but pitch counts were not included in this study for various reasons I don't think we need to go into, but there was it was not included. The other factor is that this study did not include players that were aged 13 to 15 years old, very similar to the manuscript we just discussed. Basically, only elementary school student athletes were investigated. If we use the same ages for this country, basically, we had elementary school, but not middle school athletes. And as we know, 13 to 15-year-olds, their growth plates are starting to close, whereas our, our 10 to 12-year-olds are with rare abnormalities, their growth plates are completely open. The other factor that I was curious about, the ultrasound. I applaud the authors for using ultrasound, and they actually said one of their limitations was the validity of the ultrasonographic assessment. 
So these are my questions. With respect to the ultrasound, one, they said four orthopedic surgeons did the ultrasound assessment. I don't know if the orthopedic surgeons were trained to use ultrasound, how many exams they've done before. And as we know, ultrasound is only as good as the examiner. So if you have someone who is very experienced in using ultrasound and is an expert in it, well, then great. If it's someone who is a novice or is not an expert in that area, we don't know if those ultrasound exams were accurate. The other thing that's really interesting is I would have loved to see, and I realize from a financial standpoint, it's probably possible. I would have loved to have MRIs to compare to the ultrasound exams because one thing ultrasound is not good at is assessing for edema of the bone. So was there a stress reaction? Was there a reactive Salter Harris 1 stress fracture? Was there a subtle apophysitis that you just could not really tell in the ultrasound where the bone was reactive, but the tissues looked fine? Additionally, sometimes it's really tough to see deep into a joint, though an elbow is easier than a larger joint. So that that's one flaw. We also know that MRIs are more sensitive when looking at edema patterns in bone than ultrasound. So, so that's a concern. The other is speed. A nine-year-old is very different than a 12-year-old. I would be curious to know if they could have maybe separated some of the data like the nine and 10-year-olds versus the 11 and 12-year-olds as an example, because as, as those of us who treat pediatric sports medicine uh, student athletes, th- there can be significant growth spurts. There can be significant physical differences in individuals in those years. Those were my initial comments. I did think this is a really well-done study. The other thing I might mention and Mark, I'd like to get your opinion on also is 6.2 miles per hour difference. That's a pretty large jump. When you think about it, if you go to some of the biomechanical studies led by Glenn Fleissig or Kevin Wilk or other uh, well-known baseball research experts in the United States and around the world, we know there's a significant amount of torque and rotational force about the elbow, medial elbow, as well as the shoulder in pitchers. So I I almost would expect the pain level to increase. What's really interesting, though, is the medial elbow pain increased by a factor of three. And that's where it goes back to the comment I made before. It's our better players in some respects we almost have to be on the lookout for. Yes, we have to worry about those athletes who may not have prepared for the rigors of the season ahead. And and that is a significant concern as well. But it's almost your number one, number two pitchers, the pitchers who were throwing harder, the pitchers who maybe are taller, the pitchers who had a growth spurt, let's say in the last six months. And now they've gone from throwing, say, 60 miles per hour to 70 miles per hour. That's where I would have a, a real concern. And I think that's sort of, again, reinforcing what we suspect already. Overall, I think this was a really good study. My only criticism would be ultrasound would get you some information, but I think it might miss some other information. I totally agree about the ultrasound part. You know, I will freely admit I am not an ultrasound user. I was in the fellowship classes before ultrasound became popular. And I'm one of those, I guess you can call me an older fart now that (laughs) (laughs) I, I just haven't gotten around to actually putting the effort in to actually learn it in the way that I would want to learn it. I'm one of those people that if I get involved in something, I go all in and I just, it's just one of those things that has not been a priority for me. But I, I, w- I agree, it would be great to have that MRI correlate, but obviously that's not the focus of this study. They were used, they chose ultrasound. It would have been awesome to have that. I, I'm curious, I, I, I would love to ask those that went on the traveling fellowship to Japan, if they, they noticed that that was a higher rate of the orthopedic surgeons that they were with that were doing ultrasound in clinic. Because I think the way they kind of run clinics, they're a little bit different than what we do as far as it's less primary care sports. I think they're in more orthopedic surgeons. That may be part of the the issue there. It was interesting. There were similar rates of elbow pain reported. We talked about a quarter in this study, a quarter in the Holt study in this nine to 12 year old age group. There was an interesting table that they put in here, the, the second table, which actually broke it down by age as far as the velocity. So when you started at nine, they had a mean velocity. And again, this is kilometers per hour, 64 plus or minus nine. And then as you went to 10, it went to 72, 11, 79, and then 12, 85. So as you would expect, these kids get older, they get more mature, they start to increase their velocity. So I'm curious if that had an effect when they started to do the statistical analysis on this rather than breaking it out by age of just lumping the group together. And and certainly what we saw there is that they they noted that there was more medial epicondral abnormalities when you went increase the age. And so nine started at 15% and went all the way up to 72% by the time you got to age 12. 
in this study. And same thing for past elbow pain. That was a cumulative effect there too, as you would expect. 6% of those nine-year-olds reported past elbow pain up to 40% now of the 12-year-olds. But interestingly, the rate of present elbow pain stayed fairly similar. It was in single digits anywhere from, from 2 to 8%. So we didn't see a big difference there. I'd be curious as far as your thoughts, because I know there's been much talk about we, you know, the whole breaking pitch thing versus fastballs and the emphasis of avoiding the breaking pitches in these kids at younger ages, whereas all the things that we tend to see, it seems like it's the velocity, velocity, velocity that's causing the problem. And that's the big emphasis is increasing velocity is causing these media upper abnormalities. And maybe we do need to keep emphasizing that uh, the breaking pitches may not be so bad. Yeah, if you look at some of the biomechanical data and just look at the pure forces, a fastball actually has more force on the medial elbow than a curveball or a changeup does. So I think, and this has been a topic at different conferences, I I, I know uh, well-known individuals have spoken about this, you know, and I still recommend to my patients and to their parents or caregivers, you know, the best pitch in baseball strike one. So before you start messing around with the curveball or knuckleball or screwball or anything else, I want you to work on just throwing strikes and and just getting good form with your biomechanics. Now that said, if the question is based on the data, which pitch places more strain, I guess is the right word to say, kind of compass all the terms on the elbow. Right now, it's a fastball. I mean, that's what the data shows. But I don't know the answer if throwing a curveball is going to change your mechanics and can lead to other issues secondarily. But yeah, I mean, and that's the whole discussion, and that's not a discussion for today. And but I know we've had a discussion in the past, and we'll have one in two months on weighted balls and velocity train things like that. Where the harder you're throwing, we're not talking about curveballs anymore. We're we're talking about throwing harder. Why why are we breaking kids down when they're throwing harder, but yet they're not throwing curveballs or changeups or, or sliders? But yeah, if you look at the data, fastball puts more stress on the elbow. And I think as I was going through trying to pick out some articles for this, I think I just came across one. You may have seen this. I think it came out of the ASMI group where they were looking at, was there any changes actually in your mechanics in looking at, I think this age group actually around here or maybe in in early high school, if I remember correctly, looking briefly at the study where they, they showed that there was no difference as far as the stresses that are put on the elbow mechanically when you're doing it. It's all with how you're doing stuff with the hand. It's not stuff with the elbow or the shoulder when you're talking about looking differently between fastball and any of the breaking pitches. I mean, there's one that just came out last year looking at the professional pitchers that I think like Dr. Fleisig was the senior author on. But yeah, you're right. And and, and he's uh, led some studies, actually he's led a ton of studies, that really looking at the distal segment. So is your hand on top of the ball, behind the ball, on the side of the ball? And I believe this was a seven-year study from 2007 to 14. I think it was just published a couple of years ago in AJSM. But I can't remember the title right now, but basically what it showed is kids, before they go through puberty, if you teach them the right mechanics, when they start to throw harder and generate more forces and they're more efficient with their throw, that has the potential to lead to a less likelihood of injury. It doesn't mean you're not going to get an injury versus the importance of if they're not learning the right mechanics before they hit puberty, well, now they're going to be throwing inefficiently and they're throwing harder so now they're 0 for 2. They're throwing harder, which is in some respects a good thing for performance, but they put more stress on the respective joints. And because they're putting more stress on the joints and it's an inefficient pitch, then it puts them at a higher risk for injury. So it's a it's really nice study, but I, it was a seven-year study that was, for those of us who do clinical research, that's really hard to do, but it was really quite quite well done. It came out a couple of years ago. Well, since we're talking about studies from a couple of years ago, I think we'll we'll finish up with your article. This was in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine from 2018. I think it put into print what a lot of us felt was going on and was accounting for the throws a pitcher may make that don't make the pitch count. Can you tell us a little about your interest in that topic? As you know, and some other of our colleagues know, I, I played college baseball and I sustained a partial tear of my UCL, my elbow, and I also sustained a partial tear of my supraspinatus. I was a pretty good baseball player. I played division three, but you know, I was never going to be a professional player. If I was, maybe I would have gone to play rookie ball for one summer. So I, once I made a decision to go towards medical school and, and eventually my career, I really want to do something in sports medicine. And my, my clinical interest really has been in throwers. And as a non-surgeon, my goal is to try to fill areas that have not been studied or kind of in the non-surgical area or maybe the areas that, that are well-known physical therapists and athletic trainers haven't studied or studied in depth. 
along with that, there's been a significant interest, I should say, in the concept of workload. Workload has been studied significantly, really has been started out in Scandinavia and Europe and Australia, but it hasn't really been looked at as much in the overhead athlete as the uh, the lower extremity athlete, however you want to define that. On top of that, we know that there was all this change from innings pitch to pitch counts a couple of years ago in the United States. Japan just changed theirs, I believe, a year ago. So my thought was, well, wait a second, why, you know, there's all these changes to, to the pitch count rules, but yet the number of injuries are not going down. So I came up with this idea and I proposed it to a couple of our, our senior researchers at our institution. I said, do we even know how many pitches someone's thrown off a mound? They're like, no. I was like, well, why don't we just go out and start counting them? And, you know, after a, a lot of months of planning and being really fortunate to have some great colleagues in a couple of different departments, as well as some great researchers and, and actually some, some medical students, physical therapy students, we were able to kind of set that up and basically attend every single stinking high school varsity baseball game we can attend in Florida in the 2017 year. So we got to a significant amount of games and a significant amount of pitch outings by, by different pitchers to do this. But really it was just what what's the number? Because the thought process is if you get a baseline of what the actual number is, now you can start looking at what's fatigue level, what is workload level, what is injury rates and things like that. Until we actually know one of the variables, we you can't really determine any of that. That was sort of in a nutshell, the thought process. And I'll quickly summarize the article just to kind of get it going. And since you were the author, lead author, I will let you kind of tell us kind of all the results here. But this was a cross-sectional observational study. So again, level three evidence. What you did is you recorded the number of pitches thrown off a mound that occurred over 115 outings. So as you mentioned, lots of time watching baseball, varsity high school baseball pitchers that were starters in North Central Florida. And you included bullpen, warm-up, live game. Quick question I had there though, did you include pickoff attempts from the mound too? No. One, it got to the point where we had to really make a decision about certain things. So we didn't include pickoffs. We also did not include if, any, if the pitcher was warming up before he or she got on a mound in the bullpen for the game. So we did that. But if you were like playing catch or doing a pole to pole throws or, or, or flat ground, we didn't record flat ground either. We had to be consistent in what we were doing. And the easiest way we could do is just say anytime you were on the rubber on a mound. So that's how we did it. Can you summarize for us what you found in the study? Yeah, we, we hypothesized and we had one of our very well experienced researchers sort of mathematically come up with the fact we predicted about a 30 to 40% increase in the number of throws or pitches, I should say, off of a mound. So what we did is we, we kind of, we summarized it. We basically sat in the bleachers with a pitch counter and just kept clicking, clicking, clicking for the entire, you know, February through April. And for those of you up North, I apologize. Baseball season here starts in February in Florida. And what we found is interestingly, the total number of pitches in a game. So what is currently recommended through major league baseball's pitch smart and little league baseball and, and many state associations and the national federation of state high school associations is not one pitcher went over 105 pitches, which is the upper limit for an 18 year old. However, when you include your warmups and your bullpen, we had pitchers that were throwing 150 to 170 pitches regularly, yet no one went over 105. So what we found in the end was that an average of 42% of pitches are being missed. So you can make the argument that you know maybe one and a half times more pitches are being pitched that aren't accounted for. Now, Something, a limitation that we fully acknowledge and a lot of people would say is, yeah, but, you know, during the bullpen or maybe on the mound and your five to eight pitches of warm-ups between innings, you're not throwing really hard. And, and I completely agree with that. But the example that I always give is if you go to the gym and do a warm-up set of, you know, 10 reps with bicep curls just to warm up your arm, you're still getting a little bit tired. So there is a fatigability factor there. It's not a true workload of are you expending maximum output? Are you a max effort person when you're in the bullpen or when you are doing your warm up pitches? I fully acknowledge that. But we have to start someplace. And I think that is basically, we now know, at least at the high school level, that if you're throwing 100 pitches, you're probably throwing 140 to 150 pitches in a single outing. So I think that was, at least was a little bit eye-opening because we actually have objective data to, to something that, as you mentioned, we all suspected, but no one had a number yet. I'm curious if you think that those extra pitches, we know that those were already happening, right? So it's not like these were brand new when we changed from innings to pitch count. 
But knowing now that the volume of those extra throws, do we really, should we think about making some different recommendations in our changes? Should it be better to take those throws in and account for those in our, in our pitch count? I think it's important to be aware of your pitcher. And this is where I'm very, well, let me back up. I, this is where I'm very respectful of what my role is and versus what my athletic trainer's role is and what our head coaches and pitching, if you have a pitching coach as well as role is. My job is not to be the head coach or the pitching coach, but I, I do want to make sure that, that he or she is aware of, look, your kid is going to be throwing probably about 40 to 50% more pitches than what the game is. So that is something we have hypothesized should be made aware when you build up a pitcher in the preseason and the early part of the season, no matter what part of the country you're in. So I think that that's factor one. Factor two, this study is actually kind of springboarded our colleagues here at UF and myself to another study of try to develop, you know, what is a, a way that you can measure workload in pitchers? There's been some studies that have come out since our study came out discussing workload based on pitches. Well, the pitch count is not the workload. It's just one of the factors because the kind of silly example I give is if Mark Halstead can throw a baseball 100 miles an hour and you're only throwing 80, are you actually working as hard as you can? What is your workload the same as Jason Zremsking throw a ball 100 miles per hour and I throw it 100 miles per hour? I'm probably working a little bit harder than you are, even though we're throwing the same amount of pitches. So what I have told folks from in the medical community down to patients to our sports performance folks is, look, pitch counts is just a number. It is important, but it is not the end-all be-all. I think it is one component of what workload is in our pitchers, and we have to build up our pitchers to get them ready for the season. So this reinforces the importance of preseason training as well as trying to minimize, as I think we now know, not pitching more than eight, nine, ten months a year, because otherwise, if you're pitching eight, nine, ten months a year, you're going to need to take a little downtime. When do you have the time to build yourself back up? Agreed. I, you know, I'd be curious to think your your thoughts on this. You know, we we both love baseball. We're big MLB fans. Back when we were growing up, and certainly when I was doing stuff, you never heard of pitchers being pulled because of their pitch count. Typically, it was always you know you guys complete games were the norm. We would expect guys to be throwing 170, 180 pitches in a lot of these outings. And I don't know. I, I, I'd be curious. I, I, I don't know if I've actually looked back at the data on this as far as the injury rates back then. But you have so many great pitchers who were pitching that much who lasted for years and years and years in the major leagues. And you know now it's it's totally different it's all emphasis on on velocity and it's emphasis on you know shorter outings and all that type of stuff do you think that there's a a role there or there's something that was different then well i think i think there's a couple of things number 1 is velocity if you look and there is data on this some of it is published some of it is i guess anecdotal versus kind of more newspaper type or sports journal type as opposed to medical journals but it's all there where the average fastball velocity in the major leagues has gone up more than two or three miles per hour just in the last decade. So that may not seem like a lot, but if you think of two to three percent every decade, well, at some point it's going to have to plateau. For example, when Araldus Chapman got to the majors, he was the only one consistently thrown over 100 miles per hour. Now there are multiple guys that can that reach 100, and nearly every major league baseball closer hits over 97. It used to be if a major league pitcher hit 95 back in the 90s, that was a flamethrower. Now that is, that's close to an average fastball in the major leagues. That trickles down to college and high school and so on and so forth. So I think we're bigger, we're faster, we're stronger, we're throwing harder, at least from the perspective of baseball. In addition, when you have that amount of force, as we, we learned from the articles, both articles actually, as a matter of fact, before, before this one, that puts more stress on the elbow, plain and simple. And if you are playing year round or close to year round, there's going to be a progressive wear and tear as opposed to now I did not grow up in Florida, but I grew up in Chicago and you grew up in that area also is I don't think kids played as much. I don't think there was the advent of the showcases and the year round player, at least in the northern part of the states back then. I can't speak to Florida or Texas or Cal Southern California because I didn't grow up there, but I think there's a component of the cumulative wear and tear compounded with the throwing harder that things will break down and it, it's just really interesting how 
even hear about folks such as like Carrie Wood, you know, Carrie Wood, for those of us who are listening, remember, and, and I know Dr. Halstead does, you know, he was the, the latest in the string of Texas flamethrowers and the Cubs drafted him fourth overall. And the day after he was drafted, he pitched, uh, I think it was both ends of a doubleheader through like 170 or 180 pitches. And there was an article in the Chicago Tribune and the Cubs brass was, was not too pleased, shall we say. And that was made public. And, you know, a 20, he strikes out 20 guys in the major leagues. I remember because it was my mom's birthday, May 6th of 98. And it was something like late in 98, they started hearing rumors of elbow pain. And sure enough, I think in 99, and he tore his UCL. And he was only 21. My opinion, some of it based in data, some of it hypothetical or anecdotal, is it's a combination of year round with bigger, faster, stronger. You looked at starters in this. Have you had any interest in looking at the relievers in terms of the amount of throws that they're doing and, you know, just in general? Because obviously when we talk about pitch counts and we have all the guidelines that are out there, the pitch counts are a much smaller range there before we can talk about how many days of rest that a young athlete may need before their next outing. Sure. And if we're talking about we're loading up in an inning and we've got all these extra warm-up throws and you have the bullpen to warm up and we're not accounting for those. I mean, that that to me seems like that may even be more of a ticking time bomb for the relievers rather than the starters because they're, they may be not getting that consistent period of rest as they probably need for the amount of throws they're doing. Yeah, at the high school level, it was difficult. So we actually, we didn't include this in our data set because the numbers were so small. It was something like seven or nine relievers I think we got data on. But what was very interesting, and, and I didn't mention this, but we do have it in the manuscript, is that the average number of innings pitched for a starter with the average pitches was four innings, yet they threw an average of 70-something pitches in a game plus another 40 or so. So with only four innings, they were pitchers were throwing 110, 120 pitches. Relievers, it was difficult because some of them would come in if the pitcher, if the starter had a bad outing, they may do five or six innings because there's seven innings in a high school game. Whereas if the starter went four, five, six innings, they would go in for an inning or two and they'd be very efficient. So it sort of is all over the place. I, I think we do know for the most part, relievers are throwing less, but I think it's going to be that up and down thing that that's really difficult is if there's one main reliever in a high school team, which is rare, but because usually if you're really good, they make you into a starter. But if you're, you're kind of the main reliever, you know, are you up, are you down, are you up, are you down? And then how often are they doing that every day? That is more difficult, I think, to keep track of unless you're, you have some sort of grant mechanism where you can have someone follow around a single high school team. And even then, you're only following a couple people. So it, it's really difficult to get accurate data that way. So that's why we found the starters. But I agree with you. Your point, your point is well taken and, and really accurate is there's not going to be nearly as many pitchers as a high school team versus a, a let's say a division one college team or a pro team where you know that you're a starter you're a bullpen guy are you the closer are you long reliever in high school it's usually by the time you get beyond the first three starters it's like hey can you throw a strike for us you know so it just makes it a little more challenging but it's tough because how do you measure get up and you throw for 10 minutes in the bullpen go sit down get up again go sit down get you know i don't know how to measure the workload on that and the wear and tear but you're right it, it's important to note that it's just really difficult to capture accurate data. Yeah. And I think, you know, another factor you're just talking about the get up, get down. I'd be curious. And I don't know if anybody's ever looked at this. You know, we always talk about if there's a long inning and you have a big delay and your starter has been sitting for a long time and then they go back out there. Well, do we, do we ever know, do they really have an increased rate of injury or increased risk of pain, even though they're getting out there and warming up again? I'd love to hear about that if there is anything out there. I've never looked at that. No, and, and what's tough is it's the numbers. You know, if you let's say you use Major League Baseball, because that's where you're going, you're, you're probably a lot of numbers, and it's a little bit easier maybe to follow. Since we're both Cubs fans, when the Game Seven of the '16 World Series is, if I remember correct, if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Lester. Were they going to bring him in? Were they not? And there was the rain delay, and then were they getting Chapman ready? And there was up and down. But that, if you use that as a measuring point, well, that is October, November, and it's a 35, I think 35-year-old guy at the time that has pitched 200 innings for the year or so. So is that the same thing as you get up and down in April? And what about if you're a kid in Florida, you know, halfway through your season in March versus a kid in Chicago that's, you know, two weeks into their season in April when they've been inside because of, you know, cold weather? 
it would be very good to get that data. It's just it'd be really difficult to get a large scale unless maybe you have access to a minor league team and you can follow them all year, which some, some folks do. And I think the Major League Baseball, Baseball and Softball uh, Scientific Committee, Medical Committee may have access to. But the high school level, that would be really difficult just because of timing and weather and things like that. Thanks for bringing up Game 7 there, by the way. Probably <laughs> Probably the best sports day of my life. I think I shed more tears at the end of that game than I probably have shed in any sporting event ever. The the funny thing is for me, being a Red Sox fan, the AL and the Cubs on the on the NL, it was 1.30 in the morning on the East Coast when it happened. And my wife happened to be out of town. And at the time, we well, our older daughter was completely asleep. And then I believe it was my mother-in-law was here helping with our youngest. It was just born like three or four months before. So what was really interesting is I started getting all these calls and texts like it was 6 p.m. at night because it was 1.30 in the morning from everyone in Boston going, now you remember how it was back in 2004 because I was in Boston in 2004 for, 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 sure. school, for school and it felt just like 2004 all over again except it was Chicago this time instead of instead of Boston. But it was, it was very surreal to start having just having conversations with people at 1.30 in the morning and I'm not in college anymore, shall we say? <laughs> so, right. and, and it was nothing. Everyone was up, you know, yep. everyone, oh, everyone, sure. yeah, everyone was up and I'm in, I'm in North central Florida and we're, I'm just getting call after call and text after text. And it, it was pretty amazing. So sorry to get off track for your, for no, your, that's all right. for your hey. and anybody from Cleveland listening, I'm really sorry. You'll get there. That's right. <laughs> well, I, I went to game one and game two in Cleveland because there was no oh, way wow. I was going to, I, I could not fork over the money. Yeah. And, and God bless my wife because that was actually, if we had a prenuptial agreement kind of thing, the, <laughs> the agreement when we got married is if the Cubs ever went to the World Series, I would be able to go to the World Series no matter what. And she held through with that that promise. And so I, I made the trip out to Cleveland and the Cleveland fans were extremely gracious. We were all just happy to be there. Now, granted, obviously we all wanted our team to win, but it was it was probably the best kind of collegiality between clubs that I in an experience I've been in in that type of tense situation. So it, it's I, interesting to the Cleveland people. It's interesting you say that because that was what was reported in Boston in a uh, game four of the 2004 world series uh, where St. Louis let basically all the Boston fans in at the end when they knew they were going to win. And they said that the St. Louis fans were some of the most gracious hosts and really knew their baseball and folks in Boston really respect folks who know baseball and, and they, you know, everything that was being reported, Bob Ryan, Dan Chaunessy was just in how the fans in St. Louis were just so amazing hosts and they're very respectful, good fans, but very respectful as opposed to, you know, there's always a, a, a challenge when the Red Sox are playing the Yankees or if you, they end up playing the Phillies in, in you know, interstate, interleague play. So, so yeah, it's very interesting that, you know, the Cubs playing Cleveland and the Red Sox are playing the Cardinals. It was that, that kind of nice Midwest collegiality, I guess. It is until they play the Cubs. Then it's a little bit more dicey, but that's Well, okay. yeah. <laughs> I allow that. I allow that. Yeah. So great discussion today, Jason. This was really fun. I really enjoyed doing this. Uh, thanks for joining me for our first ever research review episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. It's been great to hear Jason's insight and get to talk with him a little bit about his own research. Please do check out our complete episode library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Peds Sports Pod. That's Peds Sports, both plural with an S on the end. And please subscribe to our podcast and leave us feedback so we can get the word out about our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.